It's been a while since we got into some nitty-gritty, concrete examples of my daily workflow in translation consulting. So in this episode, we're going to see how many issues we can walk through, and hopefully, we'll all learn something useful or fascinating from the experience. You'll definitely want to stick around for the discussion of 2 Samuel 7.19. This is Working for the Word. I'm Andrew Case. Let's get started. Now before we begin, I want to mention that there are some people who have recorded messages for me through anchor.fm, but unfortunately, they never provided a way for me to reply to them. So if that's you, please feel free to send an audio message or simple email to workingfortheword@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Once again, that's workingfortheword@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And if you send a relevant audio message with a question or helpful comment that I think may be great for everyone to hear, I may include it on a future episode. Now let's have a look at the kinds of issues the team and I dealt with during the checking of 2 Samuel. Out of 138 notes, some are pretty mundane and others are super interesting. So let's check out a sampling of both types so that we get a feel for the full range of things that come up in the checking of a book like this. So here we go. One of the first problems I spotted was a basic one in 2 Samuel 1.6. Here's the verse. And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. They had, the team had in the back translation, that Saul was leaning on his sword instead of his spear. Now, since these kinds of errors are often simply just a mistake of the back translation, I highlighted the word sword in paratext and wrote a note that said, sword or spear? They replied, spear. It was an error of the back translation. So, Easy one, simple, mundane. Life in Bible translation is full of a lot of that kind of stuff. Now, another thing that I often notice and ask about is when speech in the original is reported directly as dialogue, but for one reason or another, the team, the translation team, reports it indirectly. So, for example, in 2 Samuel 1.8, we have the following from the young man who's reporting to David what happened in battle, specifically what happened to Saul. So, quote, and he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. So, in their back translation, they had, and he asked me who I was. So, once again, and he asked me who I was, instead of saying like it does in the Hebrew, and he asked me, Who are you? So, my note on this read as follows. Here, it's a direct dialogue. In Chatino, does it sound better not to present it as direct dialogue? To which they replied, No, not really. We just followed the NIV here, but now we've changed it to direct dialogue. 
Now, keep in mind that when I open their response to one of my notes, I can also see at a glance what changes were made to the verse since the writing of that note, so that they don't have to necessarily tell me every time what they did. I can see the change that they made since I wrote that. It's a great feature of Paratext that keeps things efficient. Now, moving on, another simple one comes from 2 Samuel 1.13, where it says, And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. Now, they had in the back translation, Who are you? Instead of, Where do you come from? So, I asked them if they meant that, and they said it was a mistake and corrected it. So, pretty simple proofreading kind of stuff. Now, in 2 Samuel 2.5, we have the following from David. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. So, here we have this famous poetic verse, and the last phrase, the love of women, is a bit ambiguous, right? So, it's no wonder that translators might struggle with it. Is it the love that women have for men, or the love that men have for women? So, that's the question. Now, the translation team first had this, more than you love a woman, in that last part or more than one loves a woman. Now, the UBS handbook suggests the following. The writer probably had in mind both the love of a wife for her husband and that of a mother for her children. And I agree, so I wrote to the team, it should communicate something more like, more than a woman loves her husband. And that's what they changed it to. Now, moving on to another one, in 2 Samuel 2.16, it says in the ESV, And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is at Gibeon. The name of the place here is essentially meaningless to the normal reader unless there's a footnote or unless the name is actually translated instead of transliterated. But most major Spanish translations that I looked at had only transliterated it. Now, the UBS handbook reads as follows here. This difficult name, which is made up of two Hebrew words, has a meaning that can be translated into most languages. So, there's no reason to retain the transliteration, even though certain versions have done so. The meaning, however, is problematic, and the relationship between the name and the terminology used in the story is not as clear as it is in most stories of this kind in the Old Testament. In addition to the rendering of the TEV, the following have been proposed Field of Sharp Knives. Field of Blades, Flint's Field, Field of Champions, Portion of Ground of the Sides, and the Field of Sides. 
There is general agreement that Helkat means field, but the meaning of Hazurim is less certain. However, the most likely possibility is that it's related to the word for flints or blades. This explains why the majority of those versions seeking to translate the meaning of the name have something related to a fighting instrument, end quote. So, I wrote the team and I said, I suggest a footnote that says something like, means field of swords. However, my preference would be to translate it simply as field of swords and, if necessary, add a footnote with the transliteration. And so, the team decided to translate the name instead of transliterate it, which is great. Moving on, in 2 Samuel 4.1, we read the following. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now, the translation team had translated his courage failed with he became weak. So, I wrote the following comment. His courage failed is literally his hands fell weakened or his hands hung loose. Another version reads his hands became loose. The Hebrew is an idiomatic expression used to describe a person who has lost confidence and hope. I think it's the sense where you know there's no hope anymore that you're going to live and you just wait for death. Is that what the Chatino is expressing here? So, that's my note. They responded, the expression we had was a little weak, so we changed it to something similar to what we put in Joshua 2.11 when Rahab spoke to the spies and told them, even our souls were broken. It's equally an expression of having lost hope. So, that was great. Great exchange, they improved it with a stronger idiom. Now, if you're familiar with 2 Samuel, chapter 7 is an extremely important chapter in the whole Old Testament where God makes a covenant with David. Verse 19 is a tricky one. It's difficult. It reads as follows in the ESV. Here we go. And yet, This was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Now, the phrase in question here is that last part of the verse, which in the ESV says, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Now, let's take a look at it in several different versions. First, NASB, and this is the custom of mankind, Lord God. NIV, and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. NLT, do you deal with everyone this way, O sovereign Lord? KJV, and is this the manner of man, O Lord God? So, right off the bat, you notice that there's a lot of variation going on here. And one of the first things I want you to notice is that there's a confusion as to whether to translate this as a statement or a question. 
lending yet another example of how Hebrew sometimes has some ambiguity that must be cleared up by context, which also lends support to my argument in a past podcast on Exodus 6.3. So, what is this in Hebrew? What is going on here? The three words in question here in Hebrew are v'zot torat ha'adam. Once again, v'zot torat ha'adam. Now, very literally, we could translate these three words as, and this is instruction of the man, or, and this is the law or the Torah of mankind. But it is literally ha'adam, the man or mankind. And the word Torah, law or instruction, is in construct with mankind or ha'adam. Now, if you look at this phrase in Hebrew in paratext, it's flagged with notes from the Hebrew Old Testament text project. See past episodes if you want to know what that's all about. Usually, things like this, when they're flagged with Hebrew Old Testament text project notes, usually things like this represent textual variants. But interestingly here, the committee on the text decided to include this phrase in their discussion even though there are no variants. If you look at the BHS, there is no footnote. And I was confused by this at first, and the note in paratext is extremely abbreviated, so I went to the free download of the PDF of Volume 3 of Critique Textuelle de l'Ancien Testament, which has the full discussion of the issue in French. But I don't speak French. But I pointed my Google Lens at the screen, and it instantly translated it into English for me with the following. I'm not going to read it all, but here's some. Here we go. In 2 Samuel 7.19b, the Masoretic text has no rivals in the textual tradition. If one refuses to assimilate to the parallel of 1 Chronicles 17.17, because there's a parallel there, parallel passage of what David is saying, and it's different. If one refuses to assimilate to the parallel of 1 Chronicles 17.17, the problem is therefore reduced to a serious difficulty of interpretation, as shown by the proliferation of conjectures. Here are some exegesis essays that are worth mentioning. Eisfeld suggests to take the expression in the most obvious sense, quote, and that is the law of man, Lord God. This fundamental law concerning man would be the law of procreation, the only way for man to continue in the survival of his quote-unquote house. This exegesis has the advantage of respecting the most normal meaning of the words used, but it ends in a platitude. We can also quote that of T. and Buber, quote, and that is instruction for humanity, end quote. This translation would be better suited to a construction with Lamed than the construct state. J2 Devaux translates, here is the destiny of man, Lord Yahweh. He notes, Quote, by understanding Torat Adam as the divine decision which fixes the fate of men, he thus arrives without seeing it very close to the translation, 
it is the statute of Adam, with the comment, he, David, wants to speak of the first man. Just as you made Adam the stump of humanity, and that his posterity endure without interruption, so you made me, David, the stump of kingship, and my posterity will remain, whatever happens in this world. End quote. So that's the end of what Google translated for me from the French commentary. Now let's see what the UBS handbook has to say. In summary, it says the meaning of the Hebrew text at this point is unclear, as the wide variety of renderings in English indicates. A literal rendering of the Hebrew is, and this is the law of man. And this is recommended by HOTTP, which gives an A rating to the text, but interpreters have long been unable to say exactly what this means in the present context. NJPS attempts to make sense of it by translating, may that be the law for your people, while Anderson has, this is truly a divine revelation for mankind. NJB has rendered this passage, such is human destiny indicating in a footnote that the translation is uncertain. Others have proposed changes in the Hebrew text to keep it in parallel with the passage in 1 Chronicles 17.17, which is what the RSV does, which says, And hast shown me future generations, O Lord God. In keeping with the preferred reading of the HOTTP, One rather attractive proposal is to take the words as another rhetorical question. Is this the law for man? Meaning, is this the way you normally deal with human beings? This solution, adopted by the NIV, CEV, and others, will then be another expression of David's surprise at the grace of God. Another version translates the Hebrew literally, and then states in a note, difficult to understand. Perhaps, can a human being deserve such favor? End quote. In the end, all translators must acknowledge that there is no perfect solution to the problems presented by the Hebrew text here. An explanatory footnote will probably be required no matter what solution is adopted in the body of the translation. And that's the end of the UBS commentary. So, I relayed this information to the team in Spanish, but I added a suggestion of what they could put in the footnote. I said they should probably put in the footnote, quote, the Hebrew here is uncertain or obscure. But now that I think about this more critically, I don't believe my suggestion is accurate. The Hebrew text is actually crystal clear. There are no grammatical or lexical anomalies like hapax legomena. An actual example of this sort of lack of clarity in the Hebrew text itself would be Job 39.18, where the ESV has a footnote that says the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. On the first line, which is talking about the ostrich, here's what it says. When she rouses herself to flee, dot, dot, dot. So, the reason this is uncertain is because the verb tamri in Hebrew occurs only once in the entire Old Testament. It is a hapax legomenon, so that's the main reason the ESV has that footnote. So, going back to the issue at hand, 
It's only the meaning or interpretation of the Hebrew text that may be unclear, not the text itself, which is an important distinction to make that I failed to make in my note to the translation team. Now, the UBS handbook said that the meaning was unclear, but my mistake was to say that the Hebrew itself was unclear. A better solution would be to provide the literal Hebrew rendering in the footnote and allow people to interpret it differently if they see fit. Now, I want to highlight this as an example of how a consultant can make mistakes for one reason or another. Even consultants that have decades more experience than I do and multiple PhDs, Bible translations don't come out perfect the first time around. The owners of this translation need to be empowered with access to the Hebrew so that they can continue to polish their translation over the course of their lifetimes and correct mistakes the consultant himself made. If I hadn't gone back through this issue for the sake of this podcast, I wouldn't have caught my mistake and it would have gone out for publishing. One of the big problems with the consultant model as it has stood for years, is that translators tend to be overly trusting of consultants because the consultants appear to have so much more knowledge or training than they have, especially when it comes to the original languages. So, they're prone to take the consultant's word for anything and hesitate to push back or investigate for themselves on decisions like this one. But if we train them well... The work can be a conversation between equals because both can look at the Hebrew and assess the question without blindly trusting an elite scholar or something like that. Slowly but surely, the translators that I'm training on this team in Hebrew are gaining confidence to be able to push back and be more independent and look at the Hebrew. Now, this phrase, Vizot Torat Adam, contains words that any first-year Hebrew student can understand, but the temptation to let the consultant do the harder work or the temptation to feel inadequate, as many minority groups have been made to feel by colonizers for centuries, still can be obstacles to overcome. But if I didn't teach them Hebrew, they would never have the chance to correct this in the future if I hadn't caught it. Once again, the Hebrew here is simply three words that can be translated as this is the law or instruction of the man or mankind. Here's what the Chatino team ended up with in their translation. Following the rhetorical question model of the Reina Valera 1960, which is the majority translation in Spanish. So, in other words, the Reina Valera has this as a question. Is that the way you act with other human beings, Lord God? That's what the Chitino decided on for their translation. Once again, is that the way you act with other human beings, Lord God? So, the function of this rhetorical question is to express amazement or surprise. But is it okay, here's the question, is it okay to obscure the plain, stripped-down Hebrew here? If law or instruction is obscured, which is such an important word, by the way, obviously, 
in the Old Testament. If Torah is obscured by the translation, it ends up precluding the interpretation put forward by my professor, Dr. Gentry. So he has a compelling perspective on this verse that we haven't talked about yet. So let's talk about it. In his book, Kingdom Through Covenant, Dr. Peter Gentry writes about this verse and connects it with the wider meta-narrative, including Isaiah 55.3. Let me read Isaiah 55.3 for you. It says, Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, David's faithful acts of steadfast love. Or that last line could read, the faithful kindnesses of David. Gentry writes, in Isaiah 55.3, God announces that he is initiating an everlasting covenant. This covenant is described as the acts of loyal love performed by David, i.e. the atoning death of the servant king in chapter 53. Here, Isaiah is connecting the Davidic covenant and the new. The new covenant will accomplish what was promised in God's covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7.19 reveals that the covenant with David is God's instruction for all mankind. Isaiah follows this up by speaking of the Gentiles being called by Israel who then look to Israel's king as their commander and leader who, as witness, brings the instruction, or Torah, of the Lord to them. This is exactly what happened when Peter and Paul began proclaiming the good news to the nations in the book of Acts. End quote. Now, before we unpack that a little bit, let me actually back up and read to you the covenant that God made with David before David responds in this way. So, starting in 7 verse 8, thus says Yahweh of armies, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel." And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, 
I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So obviously, this passage is messianic, and the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1.5 picks up on this, quoting from verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So I think what Gentry is getting at is that David is exclaiming after hearing this, that this good news of a covenant, an everlasting covenant of an eternal kingdom, your throne shall be established forever, right? And established in covenant faithfulness, my steadfast love will not depart from him, in verse 15. This is what David is referring to when he exclaims, this is instruction for mankind. For all the Gentiles, this will be the Torah. In other words, the gospel of the eternal kingdom of the Son of God is the Torah for all mankind. Now, why this phrase is in a construct phrase, as in Torah of Ha'adam, instead of Torah for Ha'adam, I don't know. If this is the interpretation, it seems like a Lamed of four or two would be more expected there in Hebrew, but this interpretation does have an element of beauty to it that's compelling. So, at the end of the day, this is tough. This is really, really hard. The best thing that I can do is provide also this interpretation by Gentry to the translation team to go back to the drawing board and just consider, should we make sure that people can see the element of Torah in this verse, is it significant? Should we change the translation that we have already? So, this is the question. On one hand, the advantage of the translation that they have right now, that they decided on, is that it's more immediately understandable. But if we put in the kind of the bare bones, stripped down Hebrew, even though the words are understandable, the individual words, the actual interpretation of those words may actually cause people to scratch their heads more while they're reading this. It's not always a bad thing because, you know, this is Jewish meditation literature. It's designed to make you pause and chew on it for the rest of your life. So, I'm not against that. But at the same time, we're always in this careful balancing act. Do we want something to be more readable, more apparently clear on the first reading, or do we want to strip it down sometimes so that people really, really can chew on it for a long time? And it may take years for them to make these kinds of connections that will bring out a fuller interpretation. Anyway, I am aware that there are many, many more things that could be said about this passage. It's an endless, endless sea of commentary information galore. We're really only scratching the surface. So, I'm going to wrap it up there and leave some of that for you guys to dig a little deeper on your own.
Now, if you were really paying attention, you might have noticed that I kind of pulled a fast one on you when I quoted Isaiah 55.3, because there's no version that I know of that actually renders that last part of the verse in the way that I did. In fact, most major versions would communicate something that is the exact opposite of what I read, and thus would undermine what Gentry is arguing. So, how can I justify that translation? I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger. So, come back next time. Make sure you're subscribed to hear why we can translate that last part of Isaiah 55.3 as David's faithful acts of chesed, or steadfast love. Thanks for listening. This is a podcast where we believe that the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey, and pointing to Jesus. This podcast exists, hopefully, to help us all go deeper into the Bible, to learn to treasure it more, and become like the man of Psalm 1. Psalm 1.